Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Indeed, we do, and it's a warm welcome to you from me, Alec Hogg, and our Biz News team for the Monday edition of the Biz News Power Hour, where today we're checking in with Melanie Vaness, who is the Chief Executive of the Peter Maritzburg Chamber of Business to find out what's going on in the town. We'll then pick up with David. Sorry, it's not a town. It's a city. It's the capital city of KwaZulu-Natal. It was the epicenter of all the chaos. And uh, we'll hear more from her uh, a little bit later about how business community feels there. Are they going to be rebuilding? Are they putting their money back in? Or are they just packing up and leaving? Uh, We'll then speak with David Shapiro, as always, on a Monday to give us some insights into the markets and. generally, the way he's viewing South Africa and what the rest of the world is thinking about us right now. Uh, Then Peter Major, this being a big day for mining, um, with the results coming out from Anglo-American Platinum. Peter will give us some insights from his perspective. Andre Salier will be uh, telling us about the currency and how that's been moving. I think last I saw was almost 15 rand to the US dollar, but we'll get more of that in the markets in just a moment from my colleague, Justin Rowe Roberts. And then we'll hear from our uh, friends at the Financial Times in London uh, for the FT News Report that we run within the Power Hour every day. So lots coming up for you. Uh, However, let's kick off first with the markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, first up is Nadia Swat with the news headlines. Nadia? South Africa should aim to reprioritize its budget to offset the cost of relief measures for businesses and individuals affected by deadly riots and accelerate reforms to foster inclusive economic growth. This is according to the International Monetary Fund's resident representative for the country, Max Elio, who said that this is a tragedy, but at the same time, we can't lose sight of the fiscal realities. At least 330 people died and thousands of businesses in the commercial hub of Gauteng and the eastern KwaZulu-Natal province were looted or burned down in unrest that erupted on July 10th. President Saul Ramaphosa on Sunday unveiled a series of measures aimed at helping those affected by the violence, including reinstating a monthly grant payment of 350 rand until the end of March and a 400 million rand state contribution to a humanitarian relief fund. He also announced support for uninsured businesses and other tax incentives without specifying the cost of the package. An investigation into the social media campaign to incite violence and fuel the attempted insurrection this month has uncovered 12 Twitter accounts that were central to driving the unrest. Activity on these accounts point to a clear alignment with the so-called radical economic transformation faction of the ANC and exhibited deep social media know-how in running campaigns to push the message of freeing Jacob Zuma calling for a shutdown in South Africa and spreading misinformation. South Africa's largest pharmaceutical company, Aspen Pharmacare, will release the first batch of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccines today. 
the local manufacturer of the vaccine, said they will be released from its Kabeja manufacturing site in the Eastern Cape and will be made available through the African Union's African Vaccination Acquisition Task Team platform. Aspen is manufacturing 220 million doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine for African countries at the more than 3 billion rand sterile manufacturing facility. South Africa has placed an initial order for 30 million doses, but earlier this year, President Cyril Ramaphosa said that the doses will later be increased to 400 million. Thanks, Nadja. Let's uh, have a listen now to our other business colleague who's on this program every night, Justin Rowe Roberts, with the markets. Justin? The JSE All Share Index was slightly lower at 68,000. The rand was weaker against all the major currencies to 14 rand 87 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 51 cents to the pound, and 17 rand and 53 cents to the euro. Gold is flat at $1,802 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 28,200 rand. Brent crude is down at $73.90 a barrel. And Bitcoin has skyrocketed over the weekend, trading at 570,000 rand. In the financial news, South Africa's largest food producer, Tiger Brands, released an announcement recalling millions of defective canned vegetable products from consumers. A list of the affected products can be found on Tiger Brands' websites and or biznews.com, where an article was published earlier today. The company said that the estimated cost will be between 500 to 600 million rand, and this comes as another headwind following the listeriosis outbreak, where the company is still in a number of litigation battles. The share was down as much as 7% intraday, but has recovered to trade around the 200 rand level. Anglo-American Platinum released bumper half-year numbers before the opening bell this morning. The commodity producer has benefited from higher precious metals prices across the board and declared an ordinary and special dividend to shareholders. The share was up as much as 8% today. Santon City owner Liberty Two Degrees announced this half-year results to the market. Like other property owners, the company has suffered as a result of having exposure to retail and office property sectors. Despite top-line revenue being lower, all other important financial line items were up against the prior period. The share was flat for the day. That's interesting, the uh, property story. But Bitcoin, my goodness, that's a a jump. What's caused it? I've got no idea what's caused it. There's been more news out of China regarding the regulatory crackdown around Bitcoin. So it is very surprising, that move. Yeah, maybe the Chinese people are those who, who who want to get their money out are quickly buying up whatever Bitcoin <laughs> they can until it's completely banned in that country. Uh, Nadia, uh, you did a, a wonderful voice for us that we ran on Thursday night uh, about the open letter to Soromaposa. And there have been lots of people who've watched the, the video and have listened to the audio as well. I'll have you know that our mystery... Um, well, anonymous, shouldn't call the person a mystery, the anonymous writer who goes by the nom de plume of Nimola. You'll remember, first they came for the, uh, for, for the trade unionists, then they came for the Jews, then they came for me. You recall that, uh, philosopher. Uh, we've got a, we've got a follow up. So I think you're going to have a oh, bit wow. of that one too. Yeah. Yes, and I am for sure. It's, uh, it's very good. I, I think it were, well, last I looked, 250,000 people had read the initial open letter. So presumably the follow-up will be just as popular. Interesting. Oh, Something to look so, forward yes, to. Yes, definitely. This market report was made just for you by Bright Rock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. 
Well, it was during the height of the chaos in KwaZulu-Natal that we last spoke with Melanie Vaness, who is the head of the business chamber in Peter Maritzburg. Mel, it was pretty frightening times right then, and talking to people, including family members who've been through it, it seems as though the worst might be behind the city, but my goodness, uh, the the cost has been very high. Just from a uh, the business chamber's perspective, have you got any numbers now that you can you can share with us on exactly how much damage was done during that week of looting? Yeah, Alec. Um, so I think we're still counting our losses here. I think they've estimated that uh, in the province we're we're looking at about twenty billion, uh, which is significant. Um, yeah. We're still adding it up, but yeah, if you if you start adding the numbers up, it's millions and millions. You know, here 150 million there, uh, 210 million there. So yeah, 78 million. This is the numbers. The list just goes on and on. There's some some outstanding. Obviously, some of the buildings still need assessing, um, and that's really the stock itself costs a huge amount, but the building damage is is significant um still unclear to me why you have to set fire to something you've already looted yeah but that was all part of the plan when we spoke to uh, jason mccormick he explained that the uh, the advance guard if you like or the agitators first took out the firefighting equipment so that's only done for one reason so that the arson could be successful uh, it it does however um beg the question of your members and and the businesses in peter maritzburg I know it's early, but are you getting feedback that they are going to reinvest? They're going to start up again? You know, some of them have, have said they will start up again. Others have said, um, and some of those are, are, are businesses that have been here in families for generations are saying, as soon as I get my payout, taking my money, I'm getting out of here. So, uh, you know, you can you can hardly blame them. Um, some of those businesses they've lost absolutely everything. So they will be paid out for all their equipment, their buildings. Um, and and I just, my heart breaks for, for the employees because the, one of the businesses that I'm particularly thinking of, um, you know, I was there the next morning and the employees all braved the crowds and came through to, to help clean up. So my heart absolutely breaks for both sides of the equation because you can, you can understand. Um, also, it was, it, it was very hurtful uh, because, you know, we they had to walk through those businesses. It, it wasn't just that they were looted. They they were angrily destroyed. Attempts were made to set them on fire. There was horrible um, spray paint put all over their vehicles that remained all over the walls. Um, it, there was defecation in the building. It was it, it, it was just horrible, uh, absolutely heartbreaking and horrible. Here you've chosen. To, to take your all and invest it in a place and, and, and you come into that um, with hateful. Um, and I think also to a large degree, we were, we were betrayed and we were deserted by our security forces and, uh, and some of our politicians. And, and uh, you can't get away from that. Uh, you know, everybody's coming up now and saying, you know, what a, what a terrible thing. But, but where was everyone um, when we needed them? Where were they? Yeah, Have you had any answers yet on on that? No, nobody's giving us any answers, and we just keep getting told that it's being investigated, and that we'll, you know, we'll see somebody, um, we'll see the law take its course, but uh, but that's yet to be seen. 
you know, we're just hoping that those people do get exposed. Um, and it was very obvious in the beginning uh, to anybody who was watching that there were people that stood up and condemned it, and, and there were people that just were not there. I hear again from family who, who live in the city and in the province that the only the, the beginning of, of the calming down only occurred when police were brought in from other provinces, Western province, uh, uh, Uppington, um, uh, various parts, uh, Mpumalanga, and that once those police were brought in, then it appeared as though there were security forces on the ground for the first time. And then, of course, the army arrived about a week after the looting began. Is is this telling us something about the perhaps complicit nature of the local South African police services or perhaps even the fear because they live within the same communities that were doing the looting? You know, it's, there doesn't seem to be too many other explanations for it uh, other than complicity um, because, because we saw people standing watching it happening. In fact, there's some that have been caught partaking. So uh, there, there wasn't... Uh, any real effort, um, as I said previously, you know, the excuses were given that it was uh, that there were too many people, that they were overwhelmed, but there was no attempt to use any form of tear gas or any normal crowd dispersion. Um, it just didn't happen. So for me, the only answer is that there was complicity, um, and that absolutely destroys one when when you think about what it means. What does it mean for the future of our province? You know, you if you're considering putting your money back in here, you're asking yourself, you know, if this happens again, will will the same thing happen? Will nobody step up and, and defend my business and my property and my employees' livelihoods? If if people that are employed by the state here are not prepared to to protect that, then 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 you're then you're on a hiding for nothing. It was interesting to read President Ramaphosa's letter this morning from the desk of the president where he actually uh, criticizes organizations that stood up, the civic society. He says we should not have vigilantism and it, it, uh, his, his whole approach was a very strange one and difficult for me to understand that if you hadn't had people standing up against the, uh, the rioting and the looting, it could surely have been much worse. Now you're right in the epicenter of it. Peter Maritzburg was one of the hottest places in the in the country, or uh, well, in the province. What is your reading of it? If you hadn't had these local uh, citizens, uh, citizen groups who'd, who'd got together, put up barricades, which for which they're now being criticised. Well, you know, if they hadn't done it, the damage would be far more extensive. I mean, they had the courage to stand up and protect. What they could see would be our future food sources and and our local and our local businesses um, because that's our livelihood. What, what do we do if we've got no economy uh, and it's been totally and utterly destroyed? And there really was no um, police or army presence to speak of. And in fact, it took so long for the army to get here that um, even even right at the end, when when we were supposed to have so many forces on the ground, they were protecting government um, infrastructure. Um, some of them were deployed to Barnsley Road, but otherwise I saw them nowhere else in town. Um, so, you know, it wasn't as if a massive group of people uh, of army moved in and, and, and took control again. If it wasn't for those communities, um, we would have been in a much worse state. So um, I, I do understand there was some criticism leveled at some of the uh, roadblocks. Um, there was a, an, an undercurrent 
on social media that I that I think was being driven um, was a a racist kind of undertone to to what was happening. Um, but on the ground, that was actually not what was occurring at all. Um, a lot of what was coming out on social media was proven to be untrue. Um, community stood together, which is um, really wonderful uh, to have seen. You know, the communities of Sweetwaters and Hilton protecting their environment because the community in Sweetwaters know that where they shop um, and they needed to protect it as well. So it, there was no such thing, um, although it was being fueled on social media. I had a couple of calls to say, you know, the spa is only letting white shoppers shop, which is totally and utterly not true. Um, so, you know, Bell Pottinger wasn't that long ago. Um, there's some really ugly stuff behind it. Um, and I think that, um, that the public, particularly here, deserve to know the truth of what's gone on here. It wasn't poor people that drove this. So that makes me even madder that they've had the audacity to to do what they've done, to destroy our economy, to destroy a place that I um, love with such passion, um, and to take away the livelihoods of decent, ordinary people. It's, it's unforgivable. And, you know, if we do not see some accountability for this, um, then I don't blame people for not reinvesting here. They, they, they have to when you say it's not, peop- uh, not poor people who did this, who did? Oh, uh, people arrived. It was so well orchestrated. They arrived in flat big trucks, and and uh, it, it must be an element of people that uh, that wanted to destabilize our, our country for whatever their reasons might be. I hope those will become clear. Um, you know what we're hearing on the ground is that uh, is that it's a uh, it's a group of people who, having had a look at the fact that uh, the former president has been jailed, uh, fear for their own um, freedom. Um, that they that they don't want to see that happen because they don't want to land up in jail themselves, which means that uh, if they've been um, complicit in looting the state purse and and now uh, act like this to ensure that they don't, uh, I don't really follow their logic or their logic of that of that story. Then the callousness of which you destroy everybody else's lives is just mind blowing. Um, yeah, I, I can't get my head around how anybody could do that to somebody else. Well, it's Monday, and that means David Shapiro Day for us. Uh, lovely to be able to catch up with you straight after the weekend, Dave, and actually on a day when there's quite a bit of news going around here in South Africa. Uh, let's just start off with the, uh, I suppose, the elephant in the room which is the absence of the police in the past uh, during the rioting and now the, the reaction of the government, which has been strange to say the least. But uh, what is your take on the way this is being handled, the aftermath, as it were, of uh, the week of shame? I, 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 I don't know where to start, you know, because um, we're not quite sure. Where, when I say where this is leading to, I think – Alec, I read The Economist's uh, two very telling articles in The Economist. I read in The Financial Times. I've been reading in other periodicals how people have responded to this. And the concern, you know, what really concerns me is that there's a call for change. Uh, The Economist, in, in one of the hardest pieces I've read, you know, put blame on, I mean, put blame on everyone and said that the dream of 94 is is probably over. You know, I just, I said it uh, in a comment, I said they've eulogized the end of the dream. And, and I think what government has to do now 
um, has to step back and say, okay, this is what the world thinks of us. How do we change it? You know, what are they asking for? And what, Alec, why I say that is that I was, I've been brought up in an apartheid government. I was born in 1947. They came in, the nationalist government came in in 1948 and started to institute changes. So throughout my growing up period, we were the pariah of the world. You know, we were looked upon um, with, with, with contempt. Wherever we went, you know, people would attack us on, on the policies and that. We, I don't say we defended it, but, I mean, we lived through a very difficult time. And I never thought that I would see a time again where we were the pariah, where people looked at us with such contempt. So the point is now um, where we've, you know, where we have a situation like this. I know it's all very well to step up, the, you know, the police and to, uh, to, to you know, to start acting the way that uh, they hope to act um, against in, insurrection. But I think that we, we've really got to relook at. At what do we do from here? You know, who's who? Who are we going to put uh, next to Mr. Ramaphosa, that, or whether he stays himself, to actually get us out of this? Heck, I must say the one thing is that, and and they even mentioned this within the articles, is that our businesses have been very resilient. You know, they they seem to fight against all kinds of uh, issues and still plug through, and it's the one side. That, that we can be proud of and I think we'll pull through and we'll continue to pull through will be private enterprise. But they're getting tired. You know, they're getting tired of, 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 of trying to survive and do things against the issues that, uh, you know, that we're finding. Yeah, that to that point, this, mm. yeah, to that point, I've just had a conversation with Melanie Vaness, who is the CEO of the Chamber of Business in Peter Maritzburg and an yeah. incredible professional. And she says that roughly half of the businesses in Peter Maritzburg who've been destroyed are not coming back. Mm. They're going to take their money and they're going to go. And they've already told her this. Mm. Uh, so I guess that is the, the, the resilience mm. only takes you so far. But you, yep. if you keep bashing it, eventually the golden egg yes. that pays the taxes, that employs the people, mm. that makes an economy, as economy's wheels turn, that golden egg is, uh, it's almost like, mm. certainly in Peter Maritzburg, uh, the goose has been eat, eaten. They've, they've roasted the <laughs> yeah. goose and there ain't going to be no more yeah. golden eggs, certainly at least for half of the, of the business yeah. sector there. So you can start to put in police and you can start to do all of these things now, you know, after it's all, all happened, but, uh, it still doesn't bring confidence back. We've got to start doing things that, that make people hopeful, the same as we were in 94. And I've said this, we've said this many times on your show, you know, there was a very strong class in 1974 until uh, they were enticed by, by, by the trappings of capitalism and, and uh, you know, the desire to become super wealthy. But let's now move on to something else. I mean, it never rains, but it pours. And boy, is it pouring for South Africa at the moment. Naspas shares down heavily this morning as the Chinese government grabs uh, Tencent and other Chinese capitalist companies and starts throttling the life out of them. This latest story where they're going to be taking effectively their, their pay network uh, and, and subordinating that to the central bank, wiping out a big chunk of Tencent's profit has spooked the market in a big way. David, if NASPAS were to, to 
if Tencent were to fall sharply and NicePass were to fall uh, follow it down, the retirement portfolios of yeah. South Africans would be huh. adversely affected. And, and how? Look, we're down seven, eight percent already. Um, I don't know, thirteen. I'm, I'm trying to. The, the JSE is up overall about fourteen percent this year, year today. Process or NASPES, whichever one you want, probably down 14, 15%. So there's a massive gap that has emerged and, and there's a huge weighting in those shares. And it's very worrisome. We don't know where this is going to end, when the Chinese authorities are going to step down. So it's not only on the pay system, they're going systematically through businesses. The latest, the one that spooked us today has been the education story. Because, you know, in China, it's it's very important for children to get a good education so that the government decides which universities they go to. That's very important. So what happens is that you've had these tutoring apps well, you know, that, that have uh, after school where you pay a little bit more money, but you get the tutoring. And now they're clamping down on that, saying it's unfair because those who can't afford it, you know, can't get the tutoring and it's affecting their, oh, it, it's, so it goes, you know, so it goes. And also a lot of these apps are coming from America where you've got Chinese people teaching Chinese kids. So there's a massive clamp down. Those shares and uh, have come down excessively. I'm talking in excess of 20, 30% today. So the whole Chinese tech uh, area has been absolutely hammered. And for us, it's, it's as you say, it's just clobbering us. Thank goodness for the miners and thank goodness for the Richmonds and some of the other companies that are just holding us up and steadying the ship. The problem there is that you don't have a court that you can go to to take government on. Uh, there, you just if you try and take government on, you disappear, uh, and it's the reality of it. Uh, another another bit of rain that's been pouring on South Africa is the story with Tiger Brands yet again, a food company that is producing food that you can't eat. Now we saw that with the listeriosis issue where people died. What's going on with this, this latest defect of their product? You know, we, we, we don't know. This is so unlike Tigers. I mean, Tigers has been the, you know, when I say premier, there's a bit of a pun in that because the fight used to be between premier milling and Tiger Brands or Tiger Oats, as they used to be called. Who was the bigger food company? And I mean, that they all transformed into massive businesses. And for tigers, I mean, the canned, canned food is a big side. It's a massive side. So for this to happen is, is, is deeply concerning that they're, uh, that they're starting to drop the ball and starting, you know, in other words, um, not only the health issues, but, but technical issues are starting to fail. So I don't know where this goes. And we thought we were over this. But it's it's going to be another drag, and a lot of questions are going to be asked. This is you, contamination. This is you know this is serious yeah. stuff. For a food company, <laughs> it's your worst nightmare. But but David, you've told me before, uh, or you've often referenced Warren Buffett and the cockroaches. Yes, yes, that's exactly it. You know, first we had listeriosis. What's it? Listeriosis. Listeriosis. Yeah. Listeriosis. Mm. Number one. Number one two. Cockroach. So, they and here comes the cousin. <laughs> here comes the cousin. You know, you're going to meet others. So it's going to lead uh, an investigation and say, okay, listen, we've got to go through all of yours. You know, how does this happen? How can it happen at the meat plants? And now it's going to happen at these canning plants. What else is there? Where else is this? What are your standards, your health standards, and what are you doing? And are we starting to drop the ball? 
But so it's, exi- it's, a ve- mm. it's existential. If you are a mm. food company, if you're a restaurant, mm. the last thing that you can ever afford to do is to sell food that's going to give people food poisoning. If mm. you do that, you've gone. You're out of business because word spreads very rapidly. If you are a food manufacturing company, if you have one listeriosis, perhaps, perhaps people will forgive you. If you have another uh, similar issue, you, it's telling you, it's telling the public that you can't trust. And if you don't have trust, like a bank, if you didn't trust that you could go to a bank and get your money back, would you put it in the bank? So are you going to go and buy coup, uh, uh, products any, again? No, of wow. course not. <laughs> no, of course not. Now, every time you see a Tiger Brands, um, label, you're going to just question it. And I, I love peanut butter. I love blackhead peanut butter. You know, you're going to say, well, hold on a sec. Can I, can I open this with confidence? It's, it's, it's very bad. And, look, and as you say, this is the second cockroach. You know, how many more are there? Peter Majors, our go-to man when it comes to anything to do with mining. He is with Emergence. And uh, mining is the one bright spot in South Africa at the moment, Peter. Uh, it, the, the companies are doing incredibly well. They are generating lots of cash. They are paying big dividends. And everything seems to be on the right path. Everything else uh, in South Africa, it appears, uh, is struggling. But on the mining side today, these Anglo Platinum results, its decision to pay such a big dividend, what we're seeing from other companies as well, is it all sustainable? At these kind of commodity prices, it's sustainable for a couple more years until the costs catch up. And as you see, their costs are rapidly rising, more than double inflation. But that always happens in a commodity boom. Everybody wants to get a part of the cake. And, and you're so busy just making money, you don't want the operations to stop. You don't want them to even slow down. So you will pay whatever it takes to get a part. If the union gives you a hard time, you'll probably pay whatever it takes to keep them working. And, and that applies more in South Africa now than ever. You know, it is so stressful here. It's so unpredictable that when things are going your way, you'll pay a little bit more, even if it's double inflation, just because you don't want production to slow down. And Amplat still doesn't have full production at some of their divisions. So they're going to do anything to keep all those divisions producing what they are, if not more, even if it means paying more. What about from an investable proposition? Because it looks to me like we might be going back to the pre-apartheid era where if you were investing in a mine in South Africa, you wanted to get high dividends because you needed to get your money back quickly. You're, you're so right, Alec. It, it's just like those days, huh? When in the 60s and 70s and 80s and people knew apartheid couldn't last, but they didn't know what was going to take its place and they didn't know if it was going to be good. So yeah, investors demanded a high dividend. They said mining in South Africa is risky. So you have to pay us a lot higher dividend. And, and that's just how we are now. You, you hit it right on the head. Investors want a high dividend and they're not going to go f- for over the top capex. And boy, the mining companies, we said it before, I've never seen discipline on capex like I've seen our mining companies here. But even the foreign mining companies are showing more discipline than normal. So you're right. Pay out the money and just take a guess whether you got Apple computer or a mining share. If you pay out these robust dividends and something unpredictable happens and your share falls, Investors have all those years of dividends. That helps your total rate of return. It's the same, oh, I'm Warren Buffett. I'm just going to keep reinvesting in the company. And it, you'll get it in capital appreciation. 
So I think it's good. I think it's great. And it's helping everybody. It's putting money back in the economy, investors' pockets, taxes. They're paying taxes on those divs. But isn't it also channeling a lot of capital offshore, given that a high percentage of South African mining companies are foreign-owned? It is. And maybe this country should say, why do we have so many of our mines owned by offshore? At one time, um, our mines were all local. They still had big offshore shareholdings, but nothing like now. Um, Yeah, maybe the government should ask, why can't we have more companies that are 100% owned by South Africans and their their shareholder bases here? Um, it's a valid question. But unless government asks those questions and really wants to hear the proper answer and will take action when they hear that answer, nothing's going to change. Now, mining is the, is the one industry which you have to invest for the long term. So if one has a look at the event, events this month, July 2021 in South Africa, which are for many people unprecedented. If we don't see further investment, long-term investment, then the mining industry being a wasting resource will surely eventually uh, disappear. It definitely will, Alec. And, and what makes it scarier and sadder is marginal resources will be sterilized forever. It will be abandoned forever because the capex we see just goes to the nuggets, just goes to the cream of the crop. And and, and we know if, if you invest in a mine and you're pretty sure, like Anglos built mines in the 40s, 50s, 60s, the way they built mines then, they pretty much went with the attitude, we're going to mine this until there's nothing left. So Western Deep Levels was designed to be a 60, 70, 80 year mine. And we saw number two and three got closed a lot sooner because they, they didn't sink additional shafts because they couldn't justify it. I joined Alan Gray 89. I was so happy to go to see all my mining friends at Anglos and the other companies and say, look, look at the job I got now. And they said, Pete, you're too late. Here's our forward plan. There's no more big capital investment. Harry says he can't risk it on his own. And the banks have told him, Harry, there's no more money for these big deep shafts. So, yeah, the, the attitude, if it's risky, they're not going to invest for the long term and it's going to penalize the country and everybody in it. And that's where we are right now. Let's bring David Shapiro in. David, uh, you've been around for probably as long as, no, longer, of course, than longer. Peter Major. And <laughs> and you've seen the mining uh, being the, the core of this mm. economy, mm. especially at the moment where everything else seems to be under threat. Yet mm. the miners are, as Pete said earlier, they're paying dividends, they're paying a lot of taxes. Mm. Commodity prices have almost bailed South Africa, certainly to a, to a degree out of its own incompetence and its own mismanagement. But if we are hearing the, the story that there's going to, these, we, we're dealing with old assets and eventually these old, old assets are either going to be uncompetitive because they can't mine what, what's there because they're too, it's too expensive or they're going to just have no more resources to deplete. It's a very uh, worrying picture when you look mm. into the decades ahead. Well, just speak to Mr. Froneman. He tells it uh, you know, up front. He'll tell you exactly what he feels and, and what they should be doing. But it's, you know, Pete, when I, when I joined the market, which is 1972, 
I re- always remember my dad saying to me, you know, by the end of the century, by the end, we won't have any more gold left. And I thought, oh, that's years away. You know, that's still 30 years away. Oh, that's fine. But we've got there. And what happened is along the way, which, which people don't realize, there was a set gold price in those days. And the gold price has subsequently gone up, which would have made a lot more mines, extended the lives, which was not done. And that's, that's the, the point that Peter's making, is that a lot more could have been done. And we could have extracted more, you know, uh, subsequent, I think, a lot to the political situation here and, and to policies. And, you know, f- f- from, from that point of view, um, I mean, if, if you do go back to the 70s again to, to illustrate, we were getting 12% dividend yields on gold mines. You know, that's, it was a wasting asset, but that's what we were getting. And we would work it out and say, okay, in three or four or five years, you've got your money back. Whatever you've got is, is for free. Just, Go, go for the ride. But I think I th- I, the, the point is now, and this is what we've been discussing along the way, government has to change its tune. It's got to roll out the red carpet. It's got to bring people in to come back here without all the obstructions that they're putting in the way and, and just allow the industry to develop. Just sitting back, watching it, we will employ people. We will spend money in this country buying equipment, training people, and so on. They've just got to let it happen. So, anyway. Peter, is this something that the mining minister uh, should be driving? In other words, we hear so much about a cabinet reshuffle, which is desperately needed, uh, at least to get rid of the police and the defense uh, chiefs. But would mining be a, a beneficiary of a, of a different minister? You almost wonder, could it be any worse, Alec? Because when Gwedi starts most Indabas that he gets invited to by saying, hope you guys know, I'm really a Marxist. You know, I'm a socialist, but I'm kind of bending a little bit here to address a capitalist association. I mean, to start out like that. And then when we read how Cyril has to force him to up the independent power producer allocation from 10 megawatts to 100, and Cyril has to force him, you know, you want to be surrounded by people that are forcing you to do policy changes. That's that's the kind of defense and mining ministers you want to say, Cyril, I'm leading edge. This is what we have to do. And I've never met a capitalist who won't do anything to make more money, include invest locally, include hire more people. But I've never even met a socialist who doesn't say he wants to make more money. We got a lot of people here that are Marxists and socialists. I haven't seen one that isn't happy to make more money. So we keep hearing over and over until the policies change here, South Africa will continue to crumble. And the foreigners tell us that the locals tell us that. So I can't believe government and ANC doesn't know that their existing policies are destroying jobs and investment, and there's better policies that will bring in investment and create jobs. This Currency Focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Andre Silea is with Treasury One. Uh, good to see some mining numbers coming through today and boosting uh, some of the earnings for South Africa, but I guess there's lots of other issues we need to talk about. Just v- starting off with that, though, Anglo Platinum doing incredibly well. We've seen other mining companies as well. That uh, presumably is what's giving this relatively firmer undertone to the RAND. And I say relatively because in the circumstances, one might expect that uh, the RAND would have been 
under a bit more pressure? Well, if you look at the RAND, then it is under quite a lot of pressure at the moment. And we have moved to the lower levels quite a bit. Uh, I would actually have thought that the uh, numbers from mining houses and how well they're doing um, would have done a little bit better for the RAND, and it's not. I would also have thought that with Mr. President, uh, with Mr. Ramaphosa's uh, announcement last night that we moved back to level lockdown three, uh, and that they're doing stuff to assist the economy through their tax incentives and uh, delaying tax payments and reinstituting. Uh, you know, allowances for the unemployed. I would have thought that that does a little bit better for the rent. So I was quite surprised this morning and be it really literally just, just missed the 15 levels. Um, the mining numbers, as I say, trade uh, balance figures all still remaining quite positive. Uh, and yet the rent remains under pressure. So I'm a bit surprised. Uh, what has happened in the past week or so, perhaps uh, this month, to the value of the rand, primarily against the U.S. dollar, because I guess that's the one that we always track it against, just to give uh, all of us a, a reminder of where we were before uh, the the unrest began um, early, well, around about the 8th, 9th uh, of July. Well, before that, we were very closer to the 14 levels, just above the 14 levels, uh, in the ranges of call it 1390 to 1420. Uh, then came the new concerns about COVID-19 infections throughout the world. Uh, that placed uh, economies a little bit on the back foot. But in our little world of South Africa, it was mainly the unrest in the Kuzulu Natal that had put the RAND under pressure. Uh, and I think we've spoken about that before, about the investor confidence that gets negatively influenced by that. Uh, you know, then uh, with that came the Reserve Bank last week that said that they're going to keep interest rates as it is. And if you look at what the interest rate markets had actually priced in, they kind of expected the Reserve Bank to really increase interest rates uh, by 25 basis points on the back of inflation that have breached the uh, mid-level of the target range of 3 to 6%. Uh, now, the last figure, it did come down a little bit again, but slightly still above. And I think people expected the Reserve Bank uh, in anticipation of an interest rate move. And what the Reserve Bank had also said in the press conference afterwards uh, is that it was an unanimous decision not to increase it and that they do not foresee that they will move uh, on interest rates this year uh, and that they will maintain, uh, you know, a fairly loose monetary po uh, policy uh, in aiding the economy uh, back to its growth. Uh, and I think that also disappointed markets a little bit uh, and placed their end under further pressure. So you mentioned that the unrest had an impact. Often what occurs in cases like this is a little bit of a delayed reaction, a little bit like a concussion. Initially, there's just shock and panic and you don't do anything. But after the analysts start looking at the consequences of it, for instance, uh, we heard earlier in the program today that uh, from the, uh, the head of the Maritzburg Chamber of Business, 
that half of the businesses in Peter Maritzburg that have been wiped out, and there's a big percentage of businesses that have, that have taken a, a, a terrible toll here, will not be reopening. The owners have, have been saying to the CEO of the Chamber of Business, they are going to be taking the money and leaving. Uh, now that, I guess, if you, you extrapolate that to others who are invested in South Africa, it would take them a little while to think about it and then perhaps uh, to act in the same way, divest from the country. Why, if there's 200 investable countries around the world, would you go to one where uh, the police don't protect your investment, as we've seen that happened in the past week? Would that be a, uh, perhaps something we need to be watching out for on the RAND uh, into the weeks and months ahead? Absolutely, yes. Um, now, when we spoke last week, we had said that uh, if you look at the RAND and we were looking at reasons as to why it didn't move as much, uh, we had mentioned uh, the fact that, you know, in previous occasions uh, where there was negative news, and I take uh, the appointment of a Minister of Finance for a weekend uh, way back with Mr. Des van Rooyen, uh, and the action of the Rand Ren, then there was a far lesser reaction during this. And I guess uh, that's got something to do with people needed to tally up the actual cost uh, of the unrest. And now in the aftermath thereof, as you say, uh, the reaction of businesses uh, and how they will react even when they get the insurance payouts uh, for those who do, uh, if they don't open, it's got a very negative effect on economic growth, a very negative effect on employment figures, uh, and just you know, placing the country further on a backward po- uh, pace uh, in terms of economic growth, uh, and further increasing the negative feeling from investor side. And we could very well see that that's got an impact on foreign investors as to how they react, whether they reinvest or disinvest. Uh, And at this stage, it looks more to the disinvestment side. And that's definitely very negative for the currency. And what would that do uh, in a classical economic sense when you don't have money coming into the country? You've got to attract it in some way and you do that through higher interest rates. Is that something that uh, might be in prospect? That's good some, be something that's in prospect because you would have to then increase your interest rates uh, quite substantially uh, to attract investment back into the country uh, and to try and you know, lure people back into the country with uh, investments. But mostly that is always just money that comes into the bond markets, and that's hot money, as I call it, because just as easily as it flows in, as easily it flows out. So what you really need is you need structural reforms uh, to lure back investors on the long term. And that then you need to protect their businesses and you give, need to give them a safe haven. Otherwise, you will not be able to lure them back. Uh, and that's not something that is very easily to attain. And, and I think the situation remains fairly unstable throughout the country uh, in terms of this. And don't forget that we have a fair amount of taxi violence in Cape Town, which is also negatively impact on the Western Cape here and the economy here. So all over the country, uh, it's still a very vulnerable situation 
uh, and we're not seeing those structural reforms that we need. We're seeing patches, uh, you know, band-aid slips that's being put onto all the problems, uh, and that's a problem. So what's your outlook for the RAND in the short and medium term from here? Well, the short and medium term does not look fantastically well, uh, but we will have to see, you know, our, we are now back down to level lockdown three. Uh, we are increasing our vaccination process, uh, and, and, and I think the government is doing reasonably well on that end. And we will see, we'll have to see how that gels out in terms of economic growth uh, and returning to growth. And we will also have to see what happens in the rest of the world. And then vitally of importance is what happens by the Federal Reserve and their comments on what they will do with interest rates and inflation and the likes of that out of Europe as well. Um, I think that the RAND is most probably for the moment on the upper end of its ranges. And I would foresee that in the short to medium term, we could retrace back down to the 1445-1475 trading range. This currency focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Today is Monday, July 26th, and this is your FT News Briefing. First, we'll check in on the international reaction to the protests in Cuba, and then a look at why NASDAQ is beefing up its market for private companies. Plus, every year the FT holds a stock picking contest. It is really just a bit of fun, but it does mean that you can be a total amateur and do amazingly well, and you can be a proper investment professional and absolutely bomb. We'll look at how the game has turned out so far. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Cuba's civil unrest has been driven by shortages. Not enough work, not enough money, not enough food. And thousands of people took to the streets on July 11th in Cuba's biggest anti-government protests in decades. The government responded with a military crackdown and by restricting Internet access on most of the island. U.S. President Joe Biden imposed economic sanctions on the head of Cuba's military. But as the FT's Latin America editor Michael Stott points out, Other countries have reacted much differently to the situation in Cuba. In Mexico, which has a leftist president, Andres Manuel López Obrador, they have announced an aid program and they're sending two Navy ships loaded with food and medical supplies to Cuba. So almost straight after Biden announced the sanctions, López Obrador said, no, we're going to send aid, we're going to send food and medical supplies. Naturally, it's the U.S. embargo that's the problem. And then Russia, the most important ally, perhaps, of all of Cuba, said that it was also going to send aid to Cuba. It was airlifting aid to Cuba. And the Spanish prime minister, who's again from the left, has said the international community should show solidarity and donate vaccines to Cuba. So we've seen very different responses from different countries. Michael Stott is the FT's Latin America editor. Many people know the NASDAQ and the public stock exchange for tech companies, but NASDAQ also has a private share market. It's grown quickly since it first started eight years ago, and last week NASDAQ announced plans to separate its private market platform into a new unit. To explain what's going on here, I'm joined by Sujit Indap. He's the U.S. editor of our Lex column, and he's been writing about this. Hey, Sujit. Hi, Mark. Good to talk to you. Can you break down what the private and public market's been like over the past few years? 
Yeah, sure. So uh, there has been this worry that the number of public companies in America has dropped quite a bit in recent years, if not decades. And so the worry is that for individual investors like you and me who invest in 401ks, that we're missing out on the opportunity to capture wealth through high growth companies since companies stay private longer. And when they do go public, uh, they're much more mature. And so the profit opportunities have dissipated. And so there definitely is a trend of venture capital backed firms being able to avoid going public in a way like companies like Microsoft and Apple were forced to go public at earlier stages of their development. So is this why the Nasdaq is spinning off its private share market? What is it hoping to accomplish by creating this new unit? Sure. So there's a couple of things. One, they want to create just a separate entity, and that entity is going to have partnerships with firms like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Silicon Valley Bank. And so the idea is there's a few of these private exchanges, and NASDAQ is hoping with these partnerships, they can be the go-to place for the big private tech unicorns to conduct these types of transactions. The view, I think, is that the private markets will continue to grow. There'll still be companies that stay private for longer. And so rather than waiting for them to go public and trying to make money then, this is a chance to, to capture the profits from the set of companies that, that are doing something different with how they uh, manage their life cycle. So, G, what else should people consider when thinking about this move by NASDAQ? Well, I think that, I mean, the public stock market exchange is that business has become very competitive and it's very efficient. And it's great if you're a, an investor in stocks because commissions are low, bid-ask spreads are low, and the market works pretty well. And so the question is, can that kind of efficiency and order be applied to private markets? And ultimately, are ordinary investors going to be allowed to invest in uh, high-growth companies that are private, which typically is restricted now to wealthy institutions and individuals? Sujit Indep is the U.S. editor of the FT's Lex column. Thanks, Sujit. Thanks for having me, Mark. And now a shift from the private market to the public, but with a bit of a twist. Every year for the past five years, the FT has played a game involving the stock markets. FT staffers and readers pick five stocks to go either long on or go short on, to bet on or bet against. The catch here is if your stock starts to do poorly, you can't drop it and pick up a new one. You're stuck with them for the entire year. So here we are, six months into this year's stock picking game, and we thought we would check in with our markets editor, Katie Martin, to see how things are going. Hey, Katie. Hey, how are you doing? All right. Um, so just a quick question. Uh, does it matter if some of our readers are hedge fund managers or investment bankers, you know, a professional who reads the FT who might have an advantage here? I, I think the beauty of this whole contest, and it is a sort of tongue-in-cheek, light-hearted thing. But the, the beauty of it is that it's not really like the real job of being an actual fund manager. With this competition, you pick five stocks, you go long or short, so you have positive or negative bets on those stocks, and you hold them all year. And then at the end of the year, you figure out uh, which portfolios are doing well and which portfolios are doing badly. So this process of just being absolutely rigid and having a really small portfolio of stocks, it, it is really just a bit of fun. But it does mean that you can be a total amateur and do amazingly well and you can be a proper investment professional and absolutely bomb. So it can be quite a humbling experience for people who actually know what they're doing. One of the things I guess we should tell our listeners who are not familiar with this contest is that you pick them in February. How has the market environment changed since our contestants picked their stocks to what they ended up having to deal with throughout the past six months or so? Well, so on paper, this has been a super year to be doing this competition because markets have been pretty benign. 
broadly speaking, stock markets in the US and UK, which are the only two markets that the external contestants can participate in, they've just sort of sailed higher pretty much through the year. So that we obviously haven't had the sort of experience we had in 2020 when the world just stopped quite abruptly and markets fell into a gigantic hole. We haven't seen that kind of volatility. It's been pretty smooth running for the contestants. So no one's got any excuse for, for doing terribly badly. Okay, so let's let's talk about that. What's uh, What have been some of the most popular stocks among uh, staffers and readers? And and uh, is there been any difference in the, the in the stocks that they've chosen between staffers and readers? So a super, super popular bet has been short Tesla. This has been a disastrous trade for years. Betting against Tesla stocks has just been a train wreck of a trade. The stocks are up something like a thousand percent since late 2019. But participants in the competition, at least, decided that enough was enough. So 28% of readers were short Tesla. Turns out this time is different. Those shorts have made 19% in the in the period under consideration here. So this has really helped a lot of contestants to do very well. The real battle has been with retail traders and with mean stocks. So as you say, this competition, the starting gun for it this year is February the 1st. Now, right at the very tail end of February was precisely when the GameStop thing happened, right? So there were just thousands of amateur traders using Reddit to kind of coordinate their ideas. And they sent shares in GameStop, the consoles retailer, absolutely shooting higher. Now, the, the group of contestants that shorted GameStop, it was 18% of contestants shorted GameStop. That's worked out pretty well. But 4% of contestants were short AMC. And that has been a total disaster. <laughs> so, Katie, let's get to the good stuff. Uh, who's done well in this game and who's struggled? Let's focus on people who've done not so well because that's significantly more fun. So I'm sure you're familiar with Dan McCrum. Of course. The whiz-bang reporter who broke the wire card scandal. Not only is he one of the worst performing contestants within the FT, he's one of the wor- worst performing contestants in the entire competition. Wow. <laughs> He's laughing it off. I have checked. But he was short AMC. This has done a fair amount of damage. He's uh, short Berkshire Hathaway. That's also done a fair amount of damage. So he's having a very rough run at the halfway point. There's still time for him to turn it around. Now, I've checked in on your portfolio, Mark. Oh, no. Oh, oh goodness. (laughs) You're actually doing okay. Am I really? (laughs) Yes. Your portfolio average is 12%. I'm not quite sure how you've put this portfolio together. You've got a very nice long position on international paper company. Oh, yes. I, I'll tell you how I did that. I figured um, with all the at-home deliveries, there would be more cardboard yes. circulation. So I looked up cardboard producers and that's how I picked that one. I don't even remember their name. Well, genius. Very good. Um, your short Tesla, which has done very well. Also in your portfolio, you have a short on Airbnb, which didn't do very well in the period that we're taking under consideration here, and a short on GameStop, which has done pretty well. So if you get bored of podcasts at any point, you could um, go into fund management. I think this is a very creditable performance. (laughs) Katie Martin is our markets editor. Thanks, Katie. Pleasure. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news.
Well, that was the Biz News Power Hour. Good to be in your company. We'll be back again same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.